Hello, after all these years. Yeah. I don't want to get in trouble with my wife, so the first thing I got to give everybody her greeting. She's so full of envy that I'm here and she's not. She's asleep now. It's nine hours difference between Spain and here. So, is there an echo? Am I in a well? <laughs> um, we went through the ringer also there. It was probably a little stricter in Spain than here because in the towns we weren't allowed to leave the towns for like six months. Whatever town you were in, you just had to stay in it. And they had the Spanish police who are called the Guardia Civil. They had them out on the highways that you go in and out of the town on. Nobody could leave. You couldn't be out on the street after nine o'clock. Only one person could be in a car. And if you were out in a car, you had to be able to explain where you were going. <laughs> uh, so we couldn't see anybody, any of the rest of the people in the church. It was difficult for them because people there don't have the technology that everybody in California has, so there was no Zoom or anything like that. So whenever I could get out, I would go and do and visit people, sometimes just at the door, but there wasn't much you could do back in those days. So anyway, we made it through it. And uh, when my brother was in the Coast Guard, he told us that sometimes when they had a, a boat of some kind that was trying to come inside the three-mile limit, they would try to stop it. And if it wouldn't stop, then they'd fire a warning shot across the bow. You don't try to hit it. You just fire it in front of the ship so it would splash near them and make them stop. Well, the world just got the warning shot fired across its bow. We just got the warning shot from God. But what happened in the pandemic was nothing, nothing compared to what's coming. So, but that's not my subject tonight. So I better stop because I'm on the clock here. We got until 8.15. Acts chapter 17. I could just use all the time to fill you in on all the things that have happened since we saw each other last, but we're not going to do that. There's something better tonight. And the most important person was already here when all of us got here tonight. You know who that is, don't you? The one who said, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. When I was a young Christian, somebody, an older brother who's now with the Lord, told me that one of the most important things about church fellowship is to, is to know, to learn, to appreciate the fact that the Lord is present in all of the meetings. You're not just going to see the people or to learn something about the scriptures, although you should, but he said you're going to because the Lord is there. Yeah. And if he can make it to the meeting, then we can too. So here we are. Acts chapter 17, we're going to read the first 10 verses. The word of the Lord says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Jews, devout Greeks, sorry, and a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews, which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, 
and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the degrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who coming thither went into the synagogue of the Jews. And we'll stop reading there. And we know the Lord will bless the reading of his word. We'll ask him again for his help. We're grateful, Heavenly Father, for the scriptures, for the blessing, the opportunity that we have to be together and to look into them. But we need thy help. The scripture says, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability that God gives, that God in everything will be glorified. This is what we pray. And ask your help in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 When Paul and Silas went to visit the city of Thessalonica, it was the first time. No one like them had ever been there before. And when, when they left, before they planned to leave, Thessalonica, the history of that city had changed because of their visit. Unlike what happens when uh, there's a county fair or a state fair or the circus comes to town. Before I left Seville, they had some Italian circus that had come and set up on the fairgrounds there. They'll be there, you know, and they'll have the clowns and the animals and all the things that these people do. And then who knows what will be on that piece of ground when the circus leaves. Anybody know? Trash. There you go. And the people, everybody that went to it, will their lives have been enriched? No, because they got to do what they say in Spanish, rasca el bolsillo. You got to scratch your pocket. You got to bring out money to get in. So everybody's poor. Everybody that went has less money. They didn't get anything that changed their life. And the thing is gone and there's nothing there in this place, just trash on the ground and they have to send a cleanup crew. Unfortunately, that's the way it is in the lives of uh, some of these churches that are just putting on a show all the time. There are a lot in the evangelical world today, and I'm not going to go into that because that's not my subject tonight either, but their main point is to entertain people. And when the entertainment is gone, there's nothing. So you were entertained. Wasn't it um, in that movie about the gladiator, you know, when he killed everybody, he said, are you not entertained? <laughs> well, that's what they'd have to say. Reading the book of Acts is not like visiting a museum. Anybody here like museums? Or am I the only one? If you ever get me into London, I couldn't tell you the number of times. It's only two hours from where we live. I couldn't tell you the number of times I've been in the British Museum. Nobody wants to go with me. Because they all want to, they want to go in there maybe for an hour or two and see something. I want to go in there 
in the morning when it opens, stay all day, eat lunch in there, stay until they kick us out in the evening. And, and I just look at things and look at things and take pictures and think about it. I just, but reading the book of Acts is not like that. It's not a museum. Reading the book of Acts is more like, well, let's see, I have to say this in terms that people in California will understand. So what will I say? I'll say it's like going onto YouTube and learning how to make something, learning how to cook a plate, a dish of some kind, or how to unlock something when the lock, when there's no key, or, or how to change a tire, or how to build something. When you read the book of Acts, it's really more of a workshop. It's teaching you how things, not only how they were done, but how they're supposed to be done. This is a pattern to be followed. It's not a museum, it's a pattern. And all of the troubles in the world of so-called, uh, how do you say that in quotes, in, we say in Spanish, entre comillas, it's going to slip out, so you're just going to have to live with it. Uh, entre comillas, Christianity. All of the problems in the Christian world today are due to the fact that people are not paying attention to the pattern and not following it. It's all there. When Paul wrote to Timothy, what did he say? That from a child, he said, you have known the Holy Scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation. And he said, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, so that, so that what? The man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good work. It says perfect, first of all. Well, that word perfect doesn't mean he's uh, yeah, there you go. It doesn't mean, um, I was going to say intachable, but I can't say that, can I? <laughs> okay, it doesn't mean he, he has no faults. It means he's mature, complete. Let's say he's like the man who goes into the, to, uh, the armory and he gets all the weapons he needs to go out and fight. He's the worker who's getting ready to go to a job and he goes and gets all the tools. He takes his toolbox with him and he's got it all there so that he's ready to go to work. He's completely equipped. That's the word. Okay, so, in this book, we have the complete equipment for everything we need to do in this life as Christians. It's all there. Early Christianity was intended to be model Christianity, not museum Christianity. It never should have changed. It was a pattern that should be followed, but as you know, you can't follow the pattern if you don't know what it is. Thus, the importance of knowing what the scripture says. And when we listen to people teach, we don't just listen to them and see if they mention the Bible, if they read something from the Bible, and if they say, our Lord Jesus Christ, or they mention the blood of Christ, they have to say certain things. And if they say those things, we figure, well, that was a good message. There was one fellow who was a Pentecostal preacher who told people, always mention the blood of Christ because people really go for that. And he was raking in the money. There's a video about him, but I don't want to go off onto that either. But um, it's just one of those things. It's not that. It's doing what they did in Berea. They were more noble. Why were they more noble? Because they listened, they received the word with all readiness of mind, and they 
went home and ate pizza. No. And they searched the scriptures daily to see if those things were so. You know who was preaching to them? The Apostle Paul. They said, okay, well, that's really nice, but I'm going to check up on you. And I hope you'll do that. I want you to with this book. Check up on me and everybody else who speaks. It doesn't matter who they are. It's not the man. It's what he's saying. And so we have to know. And, and the early Christians did that. The ones who had the scriptures. The Gentiles didn't have it, but the Jews did. And when, they, when somebody spoke, they opened the scriptures and they checked them to see what was being said. And early Christianity, we find, and we're going to see that here in this chapter, and the one before it is full of a, a great example of it. Early Christianity could uh, take a licking and keep on ticking. Anybody here remember that? Yep. Uh, the young people don't. You guys all have smart watches. I'm not even wearing my watch tonight, which is dangerous. But there's a big one right there. I'm aware of it, don't worry. They could take a licking and keep on ticking. I, when I was the age of these guys here, they had that Timex commercial on the television. And this guy, one time he, uh, they sat him down at a table in the middle of a bull ring. It was a bullfight. And the bull's going around and around and finally knocked over the table. And he just sat there like he was completely bored. And then they brought out what they were advertising. I'm not going to go into that anymore. Or, well, no, that, was, that wasn't what they were advertising. He knocked, they gave him a drink and he knocked, they knocked, bull knocked that over. And he just sat there with the dust all around him. And uh, in the end, the thing was... The watch that he was wearing was still working. And another time they, took, they went to a rodeo and they took the Timex watch and they strapped it onto the leg of one of the Broncos. And out he went, up and down, up and down. And he finally threw the watch off into the dust and the man went over there and zoomed in with the camera on the watch down in the dust and the second hand is moving. And what does he say? Yep, Timex. He all, that's all he ever said. He just watched the whole thing happen and at the end this guy is smiling. He always said, Timex takes a licking, and keeps on ticking. And that was the big thing, so everybody bought Timex watches. People in Madison Avenue are smart. They know how to make phrases stick in your memory. Look, that was when I was their age, and I'm a little bit older than them right now. <laughs> and I still remember it. But these Christians could do that. They could take a licking and keep on ticking. Their life in those days was more difficult than the times of the pandemic. They had no rights. They were persecuted everywhere they went. Sometimes even their meetings were interrupted. Sometimes they were publicly beaten or stoned. They were caused to, to flee some cities. They'd lose all of their business and have to go to another one. Families were split up. And yet Christianity prospered in the first century without any rights. There was no Bill of Rights. There was no government support. There was no world opinion. There was no social media for everybody to get on and talk about all the terrible things they're doing to the Christians and create a protest. They had nothing. And yet they prospered. How do they do that? Some people say because they were stubborn or because they were ignorant. But we know the truth of the matter is is because they were really saved and they loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Love for Christ. That's what they had. And that's how Christianity prospered. People were not 
church attenders. They were followers of Christ, and that's very different. Because you go to a place, it's like going to a restaurant. If you don't get good service, you leave and go find another one. But when you're a follower of Christ, you can stand the difficult times. And this is what we're going to find out here. Five points we're going to look at in these few minutes we have together. The first one is devotion. You want to remember these? Devotion. The second one is proclamation. The third one is conversion. The fourth one is opposition. And the fifth one is separation. That's what we got in these first ten verses. Devotion, first of all. That's just verse one. What kind of devotion is there in verse one? If you're like me, be honest. When you read a verse like verse one, it's kind of like reading the dietary code or reading the genealogies or something like that. And you say, okay, okay, I got that. Go on, let's get to the meaty stuff. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And in your mind, you're saying, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Get on with it. I'm saying that it was not convenient for them to get to Thessalonica. That's 100 miles, and there was no Uber. 100 miles. And all they had was, like we say in Spanish, el, el coche de San Fernando. Un rato a pie y otro andando. Uh, all they had was San Fernando's car, which is one foot behind the other. That's how they had to get there. 100 miles walking. Okay, 100 miles walking, but in what condition? We don't have time to go back there now, but I, I want to ask a favor of you. Read chapter 16 sometime between now and Sunday. It's not that long. Well, it is kind of long, 40 verses. But if you read it, you can even just read, let me put it to you this way. So you can just read from verse 20. How about that, 20 to 40? I'll cut it in half. Read from 20 to 40, and you'll see how they got treated. They were preaching and helping the people there, and they got arrested. They got dragged before the magistrates. They were accused. They were beaten. They were thrown into jail. There was, there was, and it wasn't just jail. It was the dungeon, and, and put in shackles and left there. Terrible time. And when they got out, they walked, not to a hospital. They didn't go off to some Christian organization that gave them a nice place to stay and put on nice soft music in the background. And uh, they didn't get any counseling about how their feelings had been injured and what complexes and syndromes they might have now and all of these kind of things. What did they do? These were the Christians that took a licking and kept on ticking. He got out of the jail, and what did he do? He hit the trail. 100 miles walking until they got to Thessalonica. And when they got to Thessalonica, they didn't go to the hospital. They found the synagogue of the Jews and started preaching. Why did they do that? Was anybody making them do that? Were they doing that because they were trying so hard to do good works so that they could be saved? Were they trying to impress God so that he would be pleased with them? What were they doing? They went this great distance with great difficulty. I'll tell you why they did it. <laughs> because they loved the Lord. 
and because they loved the people that they knew needed to be saved. They knew what the condition of mankind is. When the person next to you doesn't know the gospel and isn't headed into a, a saved eternity, and you know it, and you don't tell them, look out. You were beside them. If you don't tell them, if you, if you don't witness to them, you're not just going to jump in and start hitting them over the head with the Bible, but you're going to think about how to reach them for the Lord. If you don't, ask yourself this question. If not me, who? And if not now, when? I'm the one the Lord put in the way. Just uh, this morning I was talking to my wife in California. She was telling me about uh, some of the neighbors that she had given. A, we have a little booklet. You'll hear the English version of it on Sunday, Lord willing. Um, it's called, uh, How's, How Will It Go For You in the Resurrection? And she's giving that out. She was telling me about it so we could pray together for them. So these men walked all of this way because they had a message that needed to go out. We have it and they need it and because they knew what God's will for their life was. How could Paul not know what Christ wanted him to do? when he stopped him on the road to Damascus and sent him out. There was no doubt. In fact, when he, in other books when he wrote, he said, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. He didn't mean he was afraid. He just meant, I don't have any excuse because I know what I'm supposed to be doing. And that's the secret to success in Tecumias again. In the Christian life is to know what God's will is for you and to do it. Not to know your will. Uh, the purpose of the Christian is not to decide what he wants to do and then get God to agree with him. It's to ask the question that Paul asked when he's on the road to Damascus. The question that maybe some people even here tonight would be afraid to ask. Or they would be hesitant to ask because the answer might change your life. He said to the Lord, What? Do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Because up until then, and Paul's a grown man, up until then, his life had been going in the wrong direction. Nothing that he did until then was of any use. He liked to use in his epistles, he liked to use the word vain and vanity, in vain and vanity. That was the thing that was in his mind all the time. Because he knew what it was to live years of your life without any purpose. You remember that hymn, Years I Spent in Vanity and Pride? Well, that was the way the Apostle Paul lived when he was just Saul of Tarsus. So he asked the Lord, what do you want me to do? Don't ask the question if you can't stand the answer. But he got the answer. He knew where he was supposed to go. And he went and did it. And he didn't do it because somebody was standing behind him with a whip. He did it because he was convinced in his heart of the need of the people, of the will of the Lord. And he knew that he was the person that the Lord had sent for this task. So there's his devotion. One of the things that makes us quitters instead of stickers in different areas of the Christian life is when our devotion is faulty. There is no substitute for love for Christ. No substitute. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, he said, The love of Christ constrains us. That word constrained means 
the forcible compression of all your energies into one channel. It's like something under pressure. It's like when that water comes out of the dam, now that you have water in the res reservoirs again, and comes out through the, the chutes and the dam, and the pipes, and it goes into the generator. It's coming down under pressure, and it's going into those dynamos, and it's turning them, and there you're getting the electricity. The forcible compression, that's the only way it's got to go. He had it. You say, well, okay, Carl, he had it. Don't get so excited. He had it. He was an apostle. Of course he had it. I'm not an apostle. I'm just a little me. Read Romans 5, 8. The love of Christ is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. It's there. It's there. But it needs to be yeah, what's the word I'm looking for? It needs to be cultivated. It needs to be expressed. It needs to be meditated on. To know him is to love him. But how do you get to know him? It's right here in this book. He's written 66 books to tell you how he thinks, what he likes, what he doesn't like. We just had a, a meeting down at the conference in, the, in L.A. and... Uh, with the Hispanic young people, and we were talking to them about how you get to know somebody. You need to get to know God. How do you get to know somebody? If there's somebody you want to get to know, you like them, you think you'd like to be their friend or their girlfriend or their boyfriend, you're trying to get to know them, what do you got to do? And don't, don't say internet. <laughs> I have a, a comical drawing in my home. It's two dogs that are left at home alone. One of the dogs is is up on the chair at the computer with his paws like this. And the other little dog is down there looking up at him. And the big dog's looking at the little dog and he say, it's because on the internet, nobody knows that you're a dog. <laughs> and he's, and on the internet, you don't really know who people are. You can say or pretend to be anything you want to be. But when you sit down in front of somebody and you're with them and you get to know them, or you're in, you go into their home and you see how they relate to the other people in their family. You see them in certain situations. Now you're getting to know them. And if you want to get to know God, if you're not spending any time in this, you're not making any progress. Believe me. Because it's not just feelings. And it's not just wishes. It's getting to know Him by what he's written to reveal himself. He reveals himself in his word. So Paul had this devotion, and that led him to the proclamation, verses 2 to 4, verses 2 and 3, sorry. He went in, it says, as his manner was. That means his habit. He had a habit. When he came to a place, he didn't just set up a little table out in the town square and wait to see if anybody came up and said, uh, could you tell me how to be saved, by the way? He didn't wait for that. He found out where the synagogue was because that was the only place where anybody worshipped the real, true God. And he would go into the synagogue and he would start with them. Romans 6, 1, 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes. It doesn't say to the elect. It says to everyone that believes. To the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. So he went in there first to the synagogue and he talked to the Jews. He said here, he found them. He went into them. He didn't wait for them to come see him. He took the initiative. He went into them because that's why he went there. 
He didn't go there to see the sights. He went there to, to see the souls, to save the souls. And three Sabbath days, that means three weeks, because they counted the, the weeks from Sabbath, from Saturday to Saturday. So he went there when they met, and he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Notice this. He reasoned with them how? Out of the scriptures. He didn't talk to them about philosophy. He didn't have a theological debate with them. He didn't argue with them different points of view. He didn't talk to them about other stuff. He took this. To reason with them out of the scriptures is, it says in another place to open, oh, it's the next verse, opening and alleging. Opening is to open to a certain text. They had the scripture in scrolls then, and he would read the text, and then to allege is to say, this is talking about this. He would read it, and then he would tell them what it meant. And this is what he was doing with it. Opening and alleging out of the scriptures. Okay, here's the point for us. And the point is, if you don't know the scriptures, you can't really reason with anybody out of them. Suppose you just picked it up for the first time and read it. You have no idea what it means. You haven't spent any time in it. You haven't read the other scriptures. A lot of people tell me, I can't read the Old Testament because there's so many things in there that I don't understand. You know what my advice is to people who say that? They say, you run into something you don't understand? Here's my advice. Keep reading. <laughs> Keep reading. Because all, a little farther along, in another book or somewhere, and sometimes not until you get to the New Testament, then it explains it. You're reading along in the New Testament, and you go, oh, so that's what that was. You say, well, why didn't he put it back there and explain it to us then? Because he wants you to read the whole book. He wants you to read the whole book. Opening and alleging. Could you do that? Just from the scriptures, nothing else. And remember, this is going to be even harder. He didn't have all of this. What's this that I'm talking about here? He didn't have this part, which is? The New Testament. He didn't have the New Testament. It was being written in those days when Paul was alive. When he read to them out of their scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, that was from Genesis to Malachi. That's what he had. Could you take any passage in the Old Testament and reason with people and show them that Jesus is the Christ? And show them the way of salvation? Did you know the way of salvation is in the Old Testament? It's in here. Say, what would you do if somebody came to you and asked you a, a difficult question or, or any kind of question about Christianity? One person told me, I'd take him to the pastor. I said, no, the pastor's on vacation. Well, I'd take him to one of the deacons. No, no, they're all at a retreat up in the mountains. What are you going to do? So they want to put it off. So I'd tell him to visit the church. No, you explain it to him. So I need to know how to do it. I'm not just talking about you. I need to know how to do it. And how am I going to do that if I'm not in the book? Reason with them out of the scriptures. So you got it easy today. Just Google it, right? And then you're out of the woods. But you still can't explain it. You're still letting somebody else explain it. Explain it as a person who's read it and knows what it says and believes it. That's just what, this is what they need. And this is what he did. They found the people and they proclaimed the gospel to them. In 1 Thessalonians, when, the, when he wrote to these people... He said in chapter 1, verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in, also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance that you know what manner of men we were among you. 
So when he says our gospel, it's because that's what he was doing when he was opening the scriptures and talking to them. He was giving them the gospel. He knew where he was headed when he started the conversation. So that's the proclamation. Third point, conversion. When you proclaim the gospel, now don't get discouraged and quit and run home crying if not everybody gets saved or if nobody gets saved. It took us 16 years to see the assembly established in the province in the north of Spain where no one, there was no evangelical witness anywhere. There was nothing but Roman Catholics everywhere. And they wouldn't even give us without the bishops of the church's permission, they wouldn't even give us a place in public where we could show a evangelical movie or have any kind of meeting. We had to have permission to do everything. 16 years. There were a lot of times there at the beginning where I thought, well, I'm sort of wondering if maybe we made a mistake. But we didn't. We knew the Lord had sent us. And when you know the Lord has sent you, that gives you stick to itivity. <laughs> and he blessed his word. It just takes longer sometimes than others. But somebody's going to get saved. In the parable of the four seeds, or you could say the parable of the sower, or the parable of the four earths, only one out of four really became a believer. So if you're just going to look at it, it's a kind of a simplistic statistic, I realize that. 25%, one in four. Even that would be optimistic in some places. So somebody's going to get saved, it says here, and some of them believed. Don't say everybody believed. Don't worry about the ones who didn't believe. Work with the ones who do. They're the ones who need the help. Some of them believed. And how do we know they believed? Because they raised their hand, because they signed a tract, because they made a pledge to the church, uh, because they fainted in the spirit. How do we know they believed? It tells you right here, doesn't it? What does it say? Some of them believed and consorted. What does it say in another version? I have the King James. What does it say in, instead of consorted? Some of them believed and... Verse 4. Hello. Okay, okay, good. Actually, the word consorted means they stuck to them. They were with them. They were with them. It doesn't mean they became followers of them. They were followers of the Lord with them. They wanted to be where the Christians were. Nobody made them do it. Nobody said, okay, now if you're going to be a member of this church, we have meetings on the following days, and you've got to show up, and if you don't, we're going to call you and see what happened to you. They're not, it, there was none of that in those days. Nobody had to tell people, please come out to the meetings. Remember your responsibility to come out to the You couldn't keep them away. They were followers. And that was one of the ways you knew when a person had really believed, because they wanted to be with the Christians where they were. They wanted to be where the Word of God was being taught. They wanted to be where people were gathered together to pray to the living God and to encourage one another. Some of them believed and they consorted. And it says there were some of them were Greeks and some of them were the chief women of the city. And that's another point there in favor of the women instead of the men. More of the women apparently believed than the men did. Well, that's nothing new, is it? Verse 5, but here comes the, the fourth point, which is opposition. Opposition, because it comes along. The devil, somebody said one time, when you get serious with God, the devil gets serious with you. 
He might not bother you until you want to do something for the Lord. And right away, here he'll come. How many times have I seen this in my life? Somebody, start, a young person will start getting serious about the Lord. And in that moment, at that time when they really should be growing up, then they start a romantic relationship with somebody. And all of their attention goes into that. And there they are. Their spiritual life just goes, or as they say in the hospital, flatline. You know, it just, it dies out or it goes way down. Because they're putting all of their attention in a person, not in the person that they just came to know. And somebody's at work. Believe me, if the Lord is powerful enough to save you, he's powerful enough to give you the life partner you need when the time comes right. There's room for faith and romance also. The Lord has never messed up a life of a person who trusted in him. But plenty of us have messed up our own lives trying to follow our feelings and and getting all worked up about it. I've got to do, I'm going to lose them. I'm going to, and, and what do we lose? We lose our spiritual growth. So these are the Jews. They didn't believe. We say, ni comen ni dejan comer. They, they not only wouldn't eat, they wouldn't let others eat. And so then they got these um, highly intellectual people from the city. I'm using sarcasm. It says here, certain lewd fellows of the baser sort that word really means, if you could translate it into our vernacular, it means people are lounging around vagrants. People are lounging around the marketplace. They're just idle people, troublemakers. And they give them a little money, or they stir them up about something, and they get them yelling like these people who go out to the public, uh, the riots and the strikes and the manifestations, and they've all got these... Uh, signs and they're carrying and uh, probably about two-thirds of them don't even know what they're doing. They're just out there. They're just looking. These people wander around from one place to another looking for something to get angry about. Looking for something to get upset about. And I don't know if they do it here, but in Spain when they wanted to do that, then they have a table set up in a different square at the end of wherever the protest march is. And there they've got uh, beer and all kinds of stuff for them to, you know, so they get, they get a free meal and drinks at the end of it. So that's what they're out there for. So they got these people, and what are they doing? Well, they're, setting the, they're making a riot in the city, setting the city on an uproar. And then they take them from there, once they get them all tuned up, they take them to Jason's house. He's one of the men in the church, one of the new believers. They take them to his house. They're looking for Paul and Silas, but they're not there. It's a good thing they were out serving the Lord somewhere and not lounging around on the sofa or in the patio. They were out working. And when these people came looking for him, they couldn't find him. So they grabbed Jason and they take him. And they accused him of this. These men who turned the world upside down have come here too. Dr. Ironside said about this passage, they didn't turn the world upside down. It had been upside down since Adam and Eve sinned. They were just turning it right side up. It had been upside down for so long, people thought it was, it was being turned upside down when it was actually being straightened out. They turned the world upside down. Well, it's a little bit of an exaggeration. They hadn't reached the whole world, but that maybe these people were from Andalusia, where I live. Everybody uh, exaggerates about things all the time. You hit your thumb with something, you say, oh, I'm dying, I'm dying. This is the way they are. So maybe this was kind of an exaggeration, we don't know. But it was also a compliment. That it wasn't like a visit of the circus or the fair. It was leaving a lasting impact everywhere they went for Christ. 
And they accused Jason of the crime of having hospitality. In verse 7, he received them. And they accused them of teaching people to do against Caesar, which was wrong. They were trying to put politics in the middle of it. It didn't have anything to do with Caesar. But they did get one thing right. They said, these fellows are preaching that there's another king, one Jesus. I don't know what you've been taught about Jesus Christ, but I'll tell you this. The scripture says that he's Lord and King. That's who he is. And when you're saved, Colossians says we're transferred or translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And in that place, you and I are not kings. We're not prime ministers. We're subjects. There's the door if you don't like it. Only room for one king in the kingdom of God. Well, this is, they got that part right. There's one king. Because in the proclamation of the gospel, the authority and the royalty of the Lord Jesus Christ is proclaimed. We're not just telling people that Jesus is your friend and he'll help you get better grades in school or have a nice job. This is not the way we preach the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 9 that they took security of Jason. What does that mean? Well, that's like, um, how can I explain this? It's like the bail bond thing. You know, when somebody has to go to court and they, don't, they let them out on um, bail, you know, they have to, somebody has to put up a certain amount of money to guarantee that that person won't flee before their day in court. And if they do, then they lose all that money. You know, so they have to put that up. So Jason had to, uh, and somebody else that was with him, it says, and the other, they had to put up some kind of, Security, deposit, money, something. We don't know what it is because it doesn't tell us to guarantee that these people were not going to stay around and cause trouble. It's kind of the opposite. Not guaranteeing they would stay, but guaranteeing that they would leave. So then Paul had to leave. What does it say? Verse 10. Now we're at the end. This is the last verse, the last point. Separation. The brethren immediately sent Paul away by night, Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So, when the believers got up the next morning, there was no apostle to teach them. Silas wasn't there, Paul wasn't there. They were gone. These were all new believers. What are they going to do? And I'm going to ask you a question. Some of you are not going to like it, but you're going to have to deal with it. Just get over yourself. If the brethren here, the people here in the church who are teaching and training you were suddenly gone when you got up tomorrow morning, what would you do? Close the doors and put a lock on them? And go play video games? Just go work and go fishing on the weekends. What would you do? They had to make a decision in Thessalonica. Paul was gone. These people had very little time. He was with them. He was in the synagogue for, for three weeks, three Saturdays. Maybe he was there for a couple of weeks longer. It doesn't tell us. Somewhere between three weeks probably and a month and a half. Very little time he was with them. And yet there are two epistles in the New Testament, two letters written to the church 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, where we find out, and I'm going to tell you this, you'll have to go check me out. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says, They became an example to all the other churches. 
How'd they do that? Well, they didn't have the apostle. How'd they do that without the apostle? Well, they had this. And they had the Lord in their heart. You have the same Lord and the same scriptures as everybody else. The question is, what are you doing with it? And that's where I'm going to leave you tonight. Let's pray. We give thanks, Heavenly Father, for the scriptures. And we give thanks that we have been given the very same material that your servant so long ago had. And those early Christians who were able to keep going in such adverse circumstances and, and in some cases even prosper. And our hearts are touched by that. And we know that these things are written not just to tell us how it went for them, but to encourage us to live the way they did so that we can also know your guidance and your blessing in our lives in the same way. I play, pray your richest blessing on the church here in San Ramon and each and every one of the believers, young and old. Pray for all of them your blessing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.